0: and now an enchanting flute-like song comes from the woodland beyond. It is a wood thrush, and it sings in measured phrases, as though it had all the time in the world, and an invited one to contemplation. Something like this. Would you live with me? Away high in a tree? I'll come right down and see. Hey, Dave.
1: Hey, Michael. (laughs) Awesome
0: beginning. (laughs) Did you forget my name?
1: Well, you you did the one-syllable thing, so I wanted to do the one-syllable thing, but I never call you Mike. Yeah. I call you So Um, Great.
0: Well, that was a really smooth start to episode number two, Bird Nerd. Welcome. We're going to just get right to it, Dave, because we've been uh, taking a hiatus.
1: Yeah, it's been a while took the summer off. Oh man, summer vacation. Yeah.
0: Um, I am so excited to introduce today's guest. Art McMorris is a retired neuroscientist and currently the Peregrine Falcon Coordinator for the PA Game Commission. A really sweet guy gave us uh, an hour of his time, came into the studio here,
1: and we had a great conversation. I'm really excited to share it with you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was, the one thing I was really impressed with was, you know, he's, he's retired, right? Mm-hmm. But, I mean, this guy looks like, you know, he's like 40 years old. Yeah, he's like it's crazy. Yeah. I don't know. I was blown away. Yeah. It's, it's what, you know, spending a lot of time in nature, I feel like, can, can do to you. He replenishes your skin and, you know, re-energizes you. <laughs> Definitely.
0: Yeah, he was full of energy, really uh, present, and uh, you can tell that he does what he loves. Or loves what he does. Yes. (laughs) Both of those
2: things. (laughs) Uh, When I started, it was in 2004. That's when I started working with the uh, Pennsylvania Game Commission, uh, which is responsible for all mammals and birds in Pennsylvania. We think of game today as species that are hunted, but uh, we're responsible for all wild uh, birds and mammals, so that's when I started. Uh, since you've uh, been through the DDT story with Jason uh, Weckstein, I don't need to to go back to that. But you do know uh, then from what Jason said um, was that uh, by 1961 there were no successfully nesting peregrine falcons in in the state of Pennsylvania. In fact, the last uh, verified nesting was in 1957. And by 1964, there were no successfully breeding peregrine falcons in North America, wow. east of the Rockies and south of the Arctic. Wow. There were remnant populations um, outside those regions, but none here. So the question is, why do we have peregrine falcons now? How did they come back? Well, they came back with an enormous amount of assistance. And uh, that really began as the brainchild of uh, a person named Tom Cade. Tom Cade is an ornithologist and also a falconer. And at the time, he was uh, a professor at Cornell University. And he had the bright idea well, all we have to do is raise peregrines in captivity and turn them loose. It's that simple. And people told him, Tom, you're nuts. You're crazy. First of all, no one has, we, we don't know how to breed peregrines in captivity. No one has ever done it. Now, falconry is known to have been a sport for 2,000 years, and is probably 4,000 years old. Right,
0: through the medieval times, right?
2: Abso- uh, long, before long before, B.C., okay? Sure, sure, so sure. Uh, But they all got their falcons from the wild, okay? No, they a, they, they didn't breed them. To, like taking
0: a... a chick or taking the egg itself do you
2: know not 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 an egg but by taking a chick from the nest yes. is one way of doing it mm-hmm. and the other is by catching a young falcon that's less than a year old okay um but none were raised in captivity. There were one or two instances of falconers' birds breeding in captivity. There are only two that I know of in the literature over all that time, and they were like mistakes. And right. oh, how did that happen?
0: And, and these are mutts as well, in a sense, where they're no, m- they weren't. They,
2: they, they weren't mutts, but okay. uh, no one had done anything to promote the breeding. Okay. Okay, so that's one thing that had to be solved, how to get them to breed in in captivity. Okay. And then another question is, if there aren't any left in North America, except for, you know, west of the Rockies and in the Arctic, right. uh, where do you get your breeding stock? Well, the falconers were an enormous help in that because they had uh, peregrine falcons in captivity. They're, they're birds, and they weren't fed... Food that was contaminated with DDT, so they were okay. So, falconers volunteered their birds as breeding stock, and falconers, although they had not, didn't have any experience breeding the birds in captivity, they had thousands of years of collective experience handling them in captivity. So, the bottom line is it worked. Uh, It started with Tom Cade's organization, which he called the Peregrine Fund, and very quickly many agencies, state and federal agencies, including the Pennsylvania Game Commission, got in the act, and literally thousands were raised in captivity and turned loose, and some of them uh, survived, some of them uh, nested, and the uh, result is that we have Peregrine Falcons today. (coughs) That's amazing. It wasn't that easy, though. Would you like some more information on that? Because
0: it sounds like a big collaboration, if I had to guess.
2: It was an enormous collaboration between um, ornithologists, uh, some of whom were falconers, some of whom were not. Falconers, some of whom were ornithologists, and some of whom were not. The general public, government agencies, non-governmental organizations, and uh, literal armies of volunteers who, who helped with this effort. So once you've raised the birds in captivity and turned them loose, and um, I'll describe the turning loose process a a little bit later. It's a process called hacking. Uh, When you turn them loose, where do you turn them loose? Well, it seems like a no-brainer that you turn them loose uh, where peregrines used to nest. If it was good for them then, it should be good for them now. And where they used to nest was uh, natural cliff ledges. In fact, historically, before the DDT era, there were 44 known pairs uh, of peregrine falcons nesting in the state of uh, of Pennsylvania. That's not a large number, but that's what it is. It's limited by uh, a variety of factors, uh, mostly by the availability of uh, nest sites. But of those 44 pairs, 43 were on cliffs, and one was on uh, what a peregrine would call an artificial cliff, that humans had very nicely constructed for them, and that's (laughs) Philadelphia City Hall Tower. That's right. And at the time, that was one of only a handful of man-made sites known in the world where peregrines were nesting. Excuse me, the pollen count is extremely high today. Just look at my yellow car.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It is. It's a hot day in Philadelphia today. May the fourth be with you, by the way.
2: Uh, Oh, thank you. (laughs) One one day before Cinco de Mayo. That's right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So uh, in the first uh, wave of reintroductions, the young birds were released on cliffs, specifically on ledges that had been used historically by peregrines. There was just one problem. When peregrines had nested there before, then the young were raised by adults, uh, which were able to uh, protect the young from predators, were able to warn the young of dangerous situations, and so forth. And the peregrines that were nesting on cliffs were pretty much in a standoff, in a truce with great horned owls, which also nest on cliff ledges. Mm. And great horned owls are a predator of peregrines.
1: Interesting.
2: Now, when, the peregrines, when these young peregrines were released uh, on cliff ledges without parents to protect them, and great horned owls had had decades to kind of spread into the unoccupied houses in the neighborhood, as it were. Yeah. The result was all of the young were lost to predation by great horned owls. Okay. So the process was briefly stopped. The thought was, you know, this is a lot of time, trouble, and expense to go through to raise food for great horned owls. So then, (laughs) so that first uh, wave of uh, reintroductions was in the 1970s. So then starting later on in the 70s and going into the 80s, the reintroductions were started again this time uh, at tall buildings and towers, artificial towers that were built in salt marshes. Uh, Tall buildings and cities are artificial cliffs, as seen by the peregrines but there aren't a lot of great horned owls in cities. Correct. Great horned owls don't like cities. Well, and why is that? Too loud? Uh, too loud, um, that is one thing. They, they, they hunt with their hearing, uh, but it just is not uh, appropriate habitat for them. I understand. Um, and there's plenty of prey. Peregrine falcons, as you know, eat birds almost exclusively, right. which they catch in the air. They won't come to the ground and grab a bird. Um, they catch it in midair, which is quite spectacular to see. Yes. And cities are full of pigeons and starlings and, uh, and other birds like this. So there's plenty of prey and reduced predator pressure. Okay. And then the other release site was uh, salt marshes, such as uh, Forsyth uh, Refuge uh, in coastal New Jersey. Okay. Where until recently there was a tower that was uh, there, it was taken down just last year, but there was a tower that was used for release of, of peregrines. Again, um, uh, much uh, greatly reduced predator pressure, and lots of prey, lots of shorebirds and and seabirds in the, in the salt marshes. So this time it worked, and the population gradually began to expand. The first nesting pairs in uh, Pennsylvania that nested successfully were in 1987. Now, I mentioned that 1957 was the last successful nesting um, before the DDT era. So So, that's a long time.
0: 30-year intervention, human intervention, to get this to somewhat of a stable trajectory?
2: um, Well, yes and no. Okay. The trajectory was up for a couple of years and then for about 15 years it was level. Um, there was a population out there nesting, a few pairs, three to five pairs, uh, but it didn't increase and so the wildlife biologists put their heads together and realized that perhaps this wasn't a large enough population to support a growth of the population. So a third third wave of reintroductions was started, and that was in the 1990s. And that bolstered the population further. And since then, starting in the uh, early to mid 2000s, then we got a trajectory of increase. Okay. And so there has what been... The,
0: what was the difference with that effort in the 90s? What was the difference? The it... difference in the, in the scale, or is there... It, it was the same kind of implemented plan. Uh, it was just more successful at that point. How... How did it differ from the 80s?
2: It simply pumped more peregrines into the population. And more peregrines in the population means more that can reproduce, more that can p- produce young. And so it's possible to, to result in an increase in the population rather than just in a holding pa- pattern where you're just barely replacing yourselves, where the, where the breeders were just barely rep- replacing themselves, but not there weren't enough nesters to produce enough young to really bring about an increase. I see. So we got uh, great horned owls as a potential
0: threat to these peregrines. What, what else is getting in the way of them proliferating in this effort?
2: Well, um, that is a good question. And right now it doesn't appear that there is a lot uh, in the way because the population continues to increase. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a target for delisting. Uh, which is a complicated formula, which I won't go into. Uh,
0: delisting them from an endangered species
2: list? Is that That's changing? correct. Okay. Now, peregrine falcons were actually removed from the federal endangered species list in 1999. All right. And that was based on numbers countrywide. And there was a good recovery in western states like Alaska, Arizona, Colorado, Utah, that have a lot of remote areas with lots of cliff ledges. Uh, But in the east, the recovery has been much slower than that. So Peregrine Falcons remain, remain state endangered or state threatened in most eastern states, including Pennsylvania, New Jersey, surrounding states. So we're getting close to that. Our goal is to see a stable um, and secure population of peregrine falcons. And um, that's our goal, to get them back on their feet or back on their wings, some people would say. When that happens, we can step back, knowing that they're okay on their own. They don't need our assistance anymore. Now they do need our assistance. Yes. And um, do you think you'll... You'll see that time? I have all my fingers and toes crossed that awesome. it will be uh, soon, yes.
0: So it's with, maybe within our lifetime that we'll see uh, these birds come off the endangered species list. And...
2: Well, I'm hoping my lifetime is not that short. <laughs> 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 um, I think it's possible that within the next few years, I won't put a number on oh, that, but fantastic. within the next few years, we will reach that awesome. position. Very cool. I,
0: I love peregrine falcons, personally. I'm a big fan of raptors. They're just, the, they were my entry into the world of birds. Uh, their power and grace, their speed. Uh, I love their hoods, their eyes. Their eyes, in particular, are really striking. And people have written poems about peregrine eyes. You you stare in, into
2: peregrine eyes all the time. What a, what What's staring back there? Well, for starters, what's staring back are eyes that are about five times as good as ours, okay? So for humans, perfect vision is 20-20. For peregrines and other falcons that hunt with their eyes, their vision is about 24, okay? So they can see what 20 feet what we can't see unless it's four feet away. It's absolutely amazing.
0: Wow. So that's a factor of five? That's,
2: that's correct. Okay. That's correct. They have amazing eyes that actually have two foveas. A fovea is the, the part of your retina that is by far the most sensitive. Okay? And your fovea, you, you can see how big your fovea is by just looking at a, at a newspaper, for example, Um, and looking at what is sharp, and then being aware of where it starts to fuzz out. And it's very close to what's sharp. Well, peregrines have two foveas in each eye, okay? One of those is pointed forward towards their prey or whatever they're, you know, uh, focusing on. And the other foveas are pointed out Wow! Towards their surroundings, predators, trees, cliffs, whatever is out there. So
0: they're, they have they have this almost like a, a hybrid deer and owl eye or something like that, okay. where they're looking in both directions. I don't know. I'm thinking of a horse or or something where that's prey. Their eyes are typically f- uh, facing horizontally, as opposed to a predator, which has Forward-facing eyes. Oh, kind of oh, 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 oh,
2: oh! So you're saying it's like an owl and a horse put together. It's almost this dual yes apparatus. Yes, yes, you could say that. And well, you uh, you uh,
0: surprised me with uh, the comment about green horn owls uh, hunting peregrines because I thought they
2: were apex predators. I, I didn't know that they were hunted. Um, So maybe there's some... Practically everything has some predators. Practically everything does. Mm -hmm. Uh, Peregrines have uh, really just two avian predators. One is great horned owls, of which there are plenty Mm -hmm. uh, in this region. And the other is golden eagles. And golden eagles do migrate through Pennsylvania, but they don't nest in Pennsylvania, so they're not really a threat. But then there are nest predators as well. Uh, skunks, foxes, raccoons, and nesting on a cliff or on an artificial cliff such as a tall building or a tall bridge gives them protection against mammalian predators that would steal their eggs or their young chicks. The protection is not absolute, We've been very surprised when we put uh, cameras on some of these cliff ledges that look to us like, wow, Spider-Man would have trouble getting there. But we see raccoons, skunks. We, we, we see chipmunks um, wow. on these cliff ledges. And how did they get there? I've been on bridges and seen raccoons. You know, I'm climbing around under the deck of the bridge in the steelwork. And there's a raccoon there. <laughs> Question number one, how did it get there? Seriously. Question number two, how's it going to get out? <laughs> but they do. Yeah. So so that's pretty amazing.
0: That is amazing. Uh, Peregrines love bridges.
2: Yes, they do. Because they love hunting over the water. Bridges, they love high places. High places. Uh, they do love to nest near water. Now, historically, as I mentioned, they were almost exclusively on cliffs. But where do we find cliffs in Pennsylvania? and in most landscapes, and that is uh, over rivers. Right. Okay? Uh, And the water, so between the cliff and the water, the water helps support um, growth and a prey base. It, It supports a population of birds, which are prey for peregrines. And also the cliff and the open area over the river or lake or sea, because they do nest on sea cliffs, provides open space for hunting. Uh, peregrines are amazing aerialists, but they can't navigate through trees and branches. There are hawks that can do that, but peregrines can't. They, have, they require open areas uh, for hunting.
0: Is it their flying style that doesn't lend it, them to those kinds of close encounter obstacles?
2: It's their flying style and also their structure. A a, a peregrine, well, falcons in general, and peregrines in particular, are designed like a fighter plane. And um, I'm fond of saying that the truth is actually the reverse, which is that fighter planes are designed like peregrine falcons, because the truth is that aeronautical engineers have learned a lot by watching birds. So they have narrow, pointed, swept back wings, long wings. Um, and uh, that provides them with speed and maneuverability. A a big wing like uh, an Eagle has, that helps them float on just wisps of air, but if you're trying to fly fast, that's a lot of friction. I
1: see.
2: So the narrow, pointed, swept-back wing is designed for speed and maneuverability, and then they have a long tail, which they use as a rudder. Those long wings don 't work very well if you're trying to fly through branches there's a group of hawks called uh, excipiters perhaps you know of sharp shinned hawks yeah. goss hawks and cooper's Hawks
0: Yeah, we have some coopers here in Philadelphia
2: oh yes yes they're they're becoming very accustomed to cities and they're actually nesting in cities now yeah they have shorter rounded wings I watched a sharp shinned hawk in my backyard chase a goldfinch I had a dense clump of um, holly trees you couldn't see through. The goldfinch went crashing th- into the holly to get away from, from the sharp from the sharpie, the sharp-shinned hawk, mm-hmm. and came crashing out the other side. The sharpie followed him through as if there was nothing there. Wow. It just zipped right through and caught it on the other side. Mm-hmm. They're amazing, but peregrines, their wings would hit the branches, and, and, and that just wouldn't work. Right shins are really cool too. Th- they are. They're they're uh, like a a small Cooper's. Uh, hawk yes.
0: With a slightly different uh, tail feather and. and they're uh,
2: very similar they're in very similar. structure yeah. uh, to a Cooper's hawk. In fact, it can be a challenge to distinguish a female shin which is larger than the male, yeah. from a. Male coopers, which is smaller than the female.
0: I'm really, I'm trying to hone that skill. I haven't quite nailed it yet.
2: Well, after we're recording, I can give you some pointers. Okay, cool. But it's actually not an easy thing to distinguish. It's not. Um, so people
0: walking by City Hall, how can they uh, look up and ID a peregrine soaring above? Okay. How do you tell the difference between a, p- a pigeon? Because that'll be the most common sight, I guess, soaring around there, a pigeon. So if people look up and they see a pigeon, they know it's a pigeon, but...
2: Right, and interestingly, I occasionally get peregrine sightings that turn out to be pigeons. Right. Okay, so here's what you look for on a peregrine. If you can see it up close, and which you normally wouldn't if you're walking down South Broad Street and you look up and see a peregrine, uh, the peregrines are distinguished by a black helmet and black sideburns, okay, which is quite unlike a pigeon. Right. Like Elvis. Yes like Elvis, in Elvis in Las Vegas right. <laughs> yes that's a good that's a good comparison, perfect <laughs> but if you're looking at it from below and it's way up above you, you're not likely to see that. What you will see is the narrow pointed swept back wings now, depending on how they 're flying, they can straighten out their wings so that they 're not swept back, they can even spread the uh, the feathers on their wingtips so that it looks broader but but that's what you look for. Another thing that you will, uh, you will see is a very rapid wing beat. That's right. It's very rapid and very shallow. Uh, pigeons have a slower wing beat and it is deeper. And as you know, sometimes when they take off, you can hear them clap their wingtips together. Peregrines never do that. And another thing to look for is speed. Uh, peregrines go extremely fast. Right. I will talk to uh, rooms full of school children, and I ask, how fast do you think a peregrine falcon can go when it's really busting it? When it And at its fastest, it's in a power dive, and all the hands go up because their teachers have <laughs> <laughs> have, have really <laughs> prepared them in class. All the hands go up, and there's a chorus that says, 200 miles an hour. Right. In a power dive, they have been clocked by radar up to 240 miles an hour. 240 miles an hour. Which is absolutely amazing. And going back to eyes, that's another thing about eyes. Imagine going 240 miles an hour with your eyes wide open looking forward. Yeah. You I, couldn't do it. We have, co- have you we ever ridden do it.
0: a motorcycle?
2: I have. Yeah. I haven't quite gotten up to 240 miles an hour. Right.
0: But <laughs> if, if if you get it, just into that like just above 60 range your vision starts to narrow oh yeah you sense it oh yeah tunnel vision begins to ensue so i got to imagine yeah that would that would start happening at a 200 240 mile an hour mark that's right but yeah they must be adapted to. and it
2: dries their uh, your eyes out now peregrines have tears that are thick they're almost mucousy okay so that they don't dry out They also have a third eyelid. It's called a nictitating membrane, which is transparent. But they don't use that when they're chasing prey at high speed because uh, their vision isn't quite as good with that membrane down. Pretty awesome. All those
0: adaptations to fly so fast. And I got to to see that up close, Dave. Because after this interview, Art invited me to attend the Falcon banding at City Hall Tower. And so I showed up early in the morning with my cameras, and I documented the whole thing. And uh, at the end of this episode, I encourage listeners to go and check out the video. And you can get a firsthand look. You can meet Art, and you can see these chicks up close, and they're hilarious looking.
1: <laughs> they're, really, they're, they're really funny.
0: Let's get back to the interview, and uh, Art's going to explain the process of banding these chicks.
1: When, when do we get to talk about your, your uh, whole experience? Sure. Like, I feel like you have a lot to say. Okay. Right after this. Okay.
0: So you're you're banding uh, the chicks, and you're yes. tracking them through their lifetime to uh, see where they nest. Eventually, uh, ultimately, how how do you recover these bands uh, upon death? I guess would be the most likely because it's hard to catch a living peregrine.
2: Well, it's actually better than that. Okay, uh, we cool. actually put two bands on on the leg okay. uh, on the bird's legs on the right. Uh, hand leg, hand leg on the right leg, uh, we place a band uh, issued by the u s Fish and Wildlife Service that has nine digits on it, and when birds are banded, then that 's the band that they that they all get you can 't read that band unless you have the bird in your hands uh, and that usually means that the bird is injured or dead, and because uh, Those situations, or or if it's trapped for some reason, Mm -hmm. and because those situations don't arise very often, the average for bird banding is that you see about one in every thousand (laughs) birds (laughs) (laughs) later on. But we put a second band on the the left leg leg, of the the peregrine, and that's That's color-coded. We're currently using a color code which is black on the top and green on the bottom. And that has two to four characters, uh, either letters or numbers, which you can read uh, if you've got a good view of the bird with binoculars or a telescope, or you get a good telephoto photograph of the bird, you can read that on a living bird. Okay. And because of that, we have recited 19% Okay, that's 190 times Mm -hmm. as many of our banded peregrines Mm -hmm. uh, that have been banded. That's great. And that's also aided by uh, two other things. One is peregrines are such charismatic birds that uh, besides our army, literal army of volunteers that help uh, with this effort to restore the peregrines, In addition to our regular volunteers, then the general public loves the birds. Wow, I saw a peregrine falcon, and here's my picture. And you look at the picture, and there's the band number. And because peregrines nest, once they find a nesting spot where they're successful, they are very faithful to that nesting spot. They don't mess with success. They will continue to nest in that same Place it might be the very same ledge, or it might be a different ledge on the same cliff. And cliff includes bridge or uh, or or building. Might be a a different spot on that same cliff, bridge or building, but still on the same. They consider that to be their cliff, and since they're reliably there, it's easy to know where they are. And if you want a good look, then um, you set up your scope. You pull out the long lens on your camera and you take a picture. So, those greatly assist with the uh, band recites.
0: That's very cool.
2: So, that avoids uh, costly technology uh,
0: as well, right? Yes, it does. Yeah, uh, something like an RFID chip or something that like, has cellular response, you'd be paying for data and it would be an ex- That's a whole other, whole other process, I'm sure.
2: Yes, those technologies give us a wealth of data that we don't get by band recites. Uh, for example, the female peregrine falcon that is nesting on City Hall came from Midnest on Tuckahoe River. There, there's a, a, a coastal marsh there. Okay. And she fledged in 2006. She came to City Hall. She's still here this year. Uh, we know all that uh, because of her bands. So we know where she came from. We know where she's nesting now we have no idea where she went in between. She didn't arrive at City Hall until 2009. So there's three years of wandering, where she was wandering around, learning about the neighborhood, finding good places to feed, looking for a territory, looking for a mate. Um, She could have been all over eastern uh, United States and Canada, but we don't know that if there had been Uh, One of these um, uh, transmitters that talks to a satellite or talks to a cell phone tower, we would have that information, but we don't. But as you mentioned, that's very expensive. And we did put transmitters on four fledglings in 2002. I just said we did, but it was they did because I wasn't involved in in the program then. And we got a wealth of information from those four birds just about their wanderings. And, and did they stay local? Or did Because
0: there are two different kinds of peregrines, are there not? There's migratory peregrines, and then there's peregrines that set up shop and stay in town, right?
2: That's right. And it's not really two different kinds of peregrines. Rather, it's two different kinds of um, habitat. Okay. So uh, since uh, since peregrines eat birds, those in the Arctic in the winter, most of the birds that they prey on have Skip town, okay? They've migrated south, so those peregrines have two choices: they can migrate or they can starve. Okay. And I guess the dumb ones that starved didn't, you know, haven't left any offspring. Yes. Um, but the others uh, migrated. Okay? okay, here in Pennsylvania, we might say that it gets cold in the winter, but birds have feathers, and more important than feathers. All, it, all they need is enough food. If they have enough food, they can stay warm. And there's plenty of prey around uh, in the winter for peregrines. So most of our Pennsylvania peregrines either stay in their territory year-round, or if they leave, they only leave for a short period of time, at most four to six weeks during the winter, and then they come right back. If they leave, um, there, there's a risk Okay, for the Arctic birds, there's an obvious risk in staying. For birds uh, in Pennsylvania, if they leave without really having to leave, that's risky too. Because if they're going to some place where they don't know, where they haven't been... They don't know what the conditions are going to be like there, the food supply, etc. And they might find that when they come back, some other peregrine had said, oh, what a nice place to nest, and yes. then they've got a battle on their hands to reclaim their territory, and they, they don't always win that battle. Sometimes the interloper wins a battle. Mm-hmm. So most of them stick around.
0: All right. Is that a common uh, uh, cause of death for these peregrines, is uh, intercompetition?
2: Um, I wouldn't say that it's common, but I wouldn't say that it's rare either. Mm -hmm. And it probably happens more often than we see. There have been cases where we've actually seen it happen. There are other cases where we don't know that it happened, but uh, we find a nest where... Oh, the female has gone nes- uh, gone missing, and she was fourteen years old, which is a ripe old age for a peregrine in the wild. Ten to twelve is is so is a common. good lifespan okay. for a peregrine in the wild. And when they get older, then like the rest of us, uh, you wouldn't know this yet. <laughs> uh, they're not as they're not as vigorous as yes. when they're younger. Yeah. So there are cases where a fourteen-year-old Um, adult goes missing, and then within a couple of days, hey, there's a new one here. You don't know what happened. Hmm. Um, It could be that the previous one simply died of old age and the new one just happened down the area two days later and said, all right, I'm moving in. Mm -hmm. Or it could be that there was a battle that you didn't see. So sometimes you are the...
0: Interloper, as you say, you're the one coming to the nest trying to uh, interact with the the young chicks, right? That's correct. So in a sense, you take on the role of of maybe some kind of uh, competitor, right? And so how does the peregrine treat you in that kind of scenario?
2: What's it like? Well, they don't like it at all. (laughs) But I will start by saying that we only do this once. Yes. Okay, We only do this once uh, to minimize disturbance. We keep our visit as brief as possible. We only do essential things, and the only reason we do that is to aid the recovery of the population so that there is a net benefit to the birds. It's not a hobby. It's not something we do for fun. We do it to benefit the birds, and as soon as a population is safe and secure and we, we've removed them, from the endangered species list, we will stop doing it. We will keep up uh, watching the nest so that we know what's happening, uh, but we'll stop uh, going there uh, to band the young. And we call it a banding visit, but really it's a nest visit. There are four things that we do there, and banding is only one of those four. Okay. Another thing that we do is verify the nesting results. This is essential data we need to understand whether the uh, population is stable, whether it's growing, how many young they have, et cetera. And at some nests, we can see into the nest, but at many, we can't tell unless we go there. So that's the first thing. The second thing is to identify the adults. Again, at some nests, then uh, volunteers, Uh, or uh, people who are uh, very much involved with the program will get photographs which allow us to identify the adults. At other times, we don't get that opportunity until we go to the nest. The third thing that we do is we give medical exams to the young to check their health, and there are conditions that we can correct right there at the nest site, which, which help them to survive. And if we find one that has a serious problem, we can take it to a wildlife rehabil- rehabilitator. And then the fourth thing that we do is to ban the young, uh, which is our uh, uh, one of our most important tools for tracking the population. As you've mentioned, uh, it allows us to find out uh, where they go, whether they nest, uh, uh, what their are uh, uh, Contribution to the population is by having young. You know how many young they have. Mm-hmm. Uh, it allows us to determine whether Pennsylvania is a source of peregrines for the population. You know on a larger scale, uh, the eastern in eastern uh, North America, or whether it's a sink. You can imagine a situation where birds that come from nests in other states and Canadian provinces come to Pennsylvania to end nest. And don't produce enough young to replace themselves. That would be a population sink. Okay. And fortunately, by doing all these things, we have verified that Pennsylvania is a population source, not a sink. But we wouldn't know that without uh, doing these other things. That's great news. So the adults don't like it when we go there. But as I said, we, ca- we keep our visit as short as possible. Yeah. I can just imagine uh, these adults, we come to the nest, they fly around, they scream bloody murder, and then we leave, and then they say, ha, these giants came, and they picked up our babies, but we screamed, and they got scared, and they ran away, man, we're good. (laughs) They have a macho kind of attitude? Yes, and it is very individual. They have individual personalities to the same degree that humans do. And they go all the way uh, on the spectrum from the adult. Like there's one particular male up in uh, northeastern Pennsylvania that whenever we go to his nest, he just disappears. And he doesn't come back until we leave. You know? So he, he's a bit of a wuss. Got it. <laughs> At the other extreme are the ones that try to rip the nose off my face and, and leave my arms and hands uh, with, with bloody scratches and yeah. pokes. And so we just deal with what we have to deal with. But there's everything in between.
0: Wow. I mean, th- these are dinosaurs you're, you're dealing with here, right?
2: Yes. I often ask people, did you see Jurassic Park? <laughs> And uh, every once in a while, somebody says no, so that's the end of the story. (laughs) But to the yeses, I mentioned the velociraptors with those fearsome claws. Okay, Birds are the direct descendants of dinosaurs. Arguably, they are dinosaurs. And those talons that you see on peregrines are analogous to the velociraptor claws. They are really fearsome. That's what they use to catch their food. And that's also what they use to defend themselves. Uh, They're not biters so much as footers. Mm -hmm. Got it. They'll they'll use their beaks
0: after catching the prey.
2: Oh, yes. They'll use their their beaks to pluck the feathers off and to tear up the prey and and, and get the good good stuff. Um, But they use their talons to catch it. And uh, to kill it. Uh, no, they actually uh, will bite it in the neck in, the in neck order to, to kill sub- it.
0: To sub- sever the spinal cord, right? Yes.
2: Yeah. Um,
0: but, and, and you also collect samples. Uh, is that correct when you, when you do these nest visits?
2: If we find unhatched eggs, now these are eggs that we go to the nest uh, when the young are 20 to 30 days old. Occasionally, we find an unhatched egg, which means that that egg should have hatched 20 to 30 days ago, and it's dead. We will take that egg uh, for chemical analysis so that we can detect uh, what contaminants the population uh, is exposed to. On occasion, and it's a rare occasion, uh, we will uh, take a feather sample, and this is also for contaminant analysis. And also, I, I take throat swabs from the birds uh, to detect a disease known as trichomoniasis. This is a protozoal parasitic infection okay. uh, that the birds get. I always, as part of my medical exam, I check the throat for any evidence of trick. Okay. Um, and if there is evidence of very early trick, I treat them with antibiotics on the spot, and that takes care of the problem. If there's advanced trick, that requires more intense care, so we take them to a wildlife rehabilitator. But I take these throat swabs because even before we can see it visually, there might be trichomonads there in the throat. So I send those throat swabs uh, to a collaborator in uh, Tennessee, and they culture the throat swabs, and on occasion they're able to detect trick which we weren't able to see, then we go back to the nest, uh, treat those birds with antibiotics. And in some years, more than 10% of uh, the young nestlings had trick infections that we were only able to detect by the throat swabs. Hmm. We then went back, treated them with antibiotics, and all of them survived and all of them fledged normally. So that's a 10% difference in the... uh, and the productivity uh, of the population. So that's an important reason for for collecting those samples. And do
0: do we know how these um, parasites proliferate into these nests, where they come from?
2: They come from the prey. Um, Living on the... Feathers of other birds? In, 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 in the throats. In the throats. That's, that, that's where they li- live. They actually came to North America with the pigeons, the pigeon fanciers brought from the old world. That's okay. actually old, uh, both, both pigeons and Trichomonas are from the old world. When people brought their racing pigeons and fancy pigeons yep. to this country and to practically every country in the world... Yep. And some of them just uh, escaped into the wild. That's why we have pigeons, and that's why we have trick. And since peregrines eat pigeons, Mm -hmm. if they eat a pigeon, uh, which has trick, then they get infected. And all the young share in the food, and so they all get infected. I see. Um, and it lives in other species as well. Um, we've seen it in crows and ravens, for example. So so it infects many species.
0: Okay. You're saying it comes from Europe originally?
2: Yes, yes.
0: Um, along with starlings, along with And sparrows. the
2: European uh, pigeons, many of them came from Africa. So, okay. Okay. so yeah, and, and were brought from Africa to Europe for the same reasons that they were brought to this country.
0: I'm, I'm trying to uh, to... Uh, talk about indicator species versus invasive species at a time that is uh, very sort of gray in terms of like where things originally came from human intervention you know the uh, talk in scientific community is that we've entered a new geological age p- p- potentially the, the anthropos- anthropocene the anthropocene right yes so um what's your, what's your, does that uh, does that inspire any kind of commentary from you in terms of thinking about the reintroduction of peregrines uh, through human intervention? Um, are they an indicator species because they they showed us that DDT was uh, r- rampant rampantly uh, killing things through the uh, through our environment and it was sort of the silent killer right? They, they That's were our, correct. They were our canary in the coal mine, so to speak. So, are they an indicator species for the greater health of the ecology?
2: Well, yes. I mean, viewed that way, an indicator species would be any species that tells you something that's going on in the environment that you hadn't seen before. So, yes, and so were bald eagles and ospreys and brown pelicans and uh, even beluga whales um, that were all decimated by DDT. Uh, Now, they all had small remnant populations. They weren't wiped out like peregrines were. Peregrines were absolutely wiped out in most of North America. Um, whereas there were a few surviving uh, members of these other species. So, yes, and I guess one could say that it's an indicator species only if you look and see and pay attention as well because the evidence was out there before people were really paying attention to it. And we really have to give Rachel Carson a lot of credit for bringing this to the uh, uh, to the uh, attention of the general public, leading to the general outcry, because okay. others had seen the de- uh, the decrease before that, but uh, it was really when the public became informed about the dangers of DDT that that actions started to be taken. And if you're asking, asking about Trichomonas specifically, yes, you could call it an in- an invasive species in North America because it's not native to here. Right. Uh, but it is native to the old world and peregrines are also native to the old world and other birds that are infected by trichomonas are native to the old world. So if you go over to Europe, then you'd say it's not invasive, it's out there as part of the ecosystem and they have dealt with each other for many years. Now in terms of intervention, we are absolutely intervening when we release peregrines into the wild and try to help them to recover. But this intervention is simply to correct a previous intervention, which was killing them off. Right. And so once that has been uh, restored and we're back to where nature used to be, then we'll stop and we will not intervene beyond that.
0: Cities are growing, right? Yes. So... Is that, is that providing more and more habitat for peregrines? Is this a good thing, um, the sort of urban development for the,
2: for the peregrines? It's providing more habitat. Whether that's a good thing is arguable for another reason. I'm interested. Um, I mentioned that historically most peregrines were all but one. The, the city hall pair were on cliffs. Now the great majority are on man-made structures. Uh, 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 It's too soon this year to give you any numbers on this year's population, but last year's population was 50 pairs in the state of Pennsylvania. Of these, only nine pairs were on natural cliffs. All the rest were on bridges. There were 21 pairs on bridges, 16 pairs on buildings, three pairs on power plant smokestacks mm-hmm. and one pair in a quarry, which was active. You know, the peregrines are nesting here and they're dynamiting over there. That's not good. No. Now, why do we care whether peregrines nest on cliffs or on buildings and bridges? They nest successfully at all these places. They produce young, those young uh, do contribute to the population growth. But there at at the man-made sites there are a lot more fledging hazards. We would could call these man-made fledging hazards. Okay. Um, if a peregrine is nesting on a bridge that crosses a river where it's a mile wide, like on the Delaware, the Susquehanna, whatever, when the young fledge, that is when they take their first flight. I think of them as being like kids learning to ride a bicycle. They fall a lot. They're not very good at it. They don't really know what they're doing. Their first flight should probably be called a first glide because what they do is they kind of glide. And if they're at a cliff and they can't make it back up to the ledge they came from, they land on a lower ledge, they land on a tree, something like that. And they're fine. If they're fledging from a bridge a mile from shore, then it's Oh, no, now what do I do? Oh. And they end up in the river, and either we don't see them again or we have armies of fledge watch volunteers that are out there in their kayaks picking them up. Whoa. Oh, for example, one year on <laughs> the site? Susquehanna, there were two fl- fledglings uh, which got the names... Duncan and Splash, (laughs) the two of them were pulled out of the river, I think, a total of four times, and if they hadn't been, they'd be dead. Right. There would be no contribution of that nest to the population. Wow. On buildings, they land in the street, or they fly into glass, or they land on power lines and get fried. Uh, You mentioned pollutants. They're certainly more exposed to pollutants in cities than they are out on natural cliffs, et cetera. And um, for example, one building in Harrisburg where there is a nest, there's an active fledge watch squad there that when one ends up in the street, they run out, they stop traffic, they pick it up, and they take it up to a safe place. It's not unusual at that building for every fledgling to be rescued at least once. Wow. Then there is the additional hazard that, okay, suppose the roof of the building needs to be repaired. I mean, it's leaking. It's causing thousands of dollars of damage. And, yeah, it's May, and there's a nesting pair of peregrines there that will be very upset and probably abandon the nest if there's roofing work going on right over their heads that lasts for a couple of weeks. Or bridges need to be repaired and maintained. Um, I drive over those bridges. I don't want them to fall down any more than anyone else does. These man-made structures were built by people to be used by people, and they have to be maintained. But, um, you know, so those create conflicts, and we do our very best to find a way uh that uh, uh to to find win win situations where the repairs can be done in such a way and on such a timetable that they won't uh disrupt the peregrine nesting, and uh the peregrines won't interfere uh with the work so that's what we aim for it's not always possible yeah. so for these reasons, the cliff nests um, actually end up making four times per nest per per breeding pair. The cliff breeding pairs make four times the contribution to the growing population of those pairs uh, nesting on the bridges and buildings. So, getting back to your initial question what are the threats? I think one of the threats is bad choices by the peregrines yeah. in choosing where to <laughs> nest. I see. We are seeing the number of cliff nesting pairs increase. The first one in Pennsylvania in the recovery period was in 2003. It wasn't that long ago. No. Last year, we had nine. This year, we have more than nine. I'm reluctant to give a number because we have to watch and see what happens at all of them. Yeah. But that number is increasing, and uh, that is a uh, terrific uh Uh, uh, benefit to the growth of the population.
0: And so much of the thanks goes to you, because you're leading this effort, and I I know I'm so grateful for uh, all the work that you've put in post-retirement to, like, give your passion and your heart to this species of uh, imperiled birds. So, yeah, I think I speak for a large swath of the population and saying thank you,
2: Art. Well, you're, thank you very much you're doing for a great that. Job. You're, well, you're, thank you very much for that. But as I mentioned, uh, there are other people within the Game Commission that help with this. Yeah. The last time I counted volunteers, there were more than 250. Without them, we would be absolutely sunk.
0: That's amazing.
2: And then just members of the general public who notice things and let us know. So no one person could ever be effective. It, 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 Uh, To quote Hillary Clinton, it takes a village.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So how can people get involved? There's 250 volunteers. I'm sure there's plenty more that uh, find this work to be super meaningful and and would love to be out there. Uh, How can people find you?
2: Um, They can find me by email. My email address is McMorris, that's my last name, M-C-M-O-R-R-I-S, at Mac, that's dot com so they can find me that way. And uh, I think the number one thing that people can contribute with now, which is not an easy thing to do, is to look for more pairs at cliffs. It's not an easy thing to do because the cliffs are remote. It's also not an easy thing to do because these cliffs are big and the peregrines are little in comparison. And um, they have camouflage coloring. So even when you know that it's there on that ledge, it's not always easy to see. But uh, if people are out kayaking, hunting, fishing, hiking, bird watching, just enjoying the outdoors and they see something at a cliff, let me know. Uh, So that's the number one thing. We have very good coverage of some nest sites by volunteers. There are others where there is coverage that is less good, and we could use more help. And if people would like to help, uh, then I could tell them, you know, where more eyes and ears would would be helpful That'd there be really as well. Exciting.
0: Cool. Well, thank you for that. That's great. Um, is there uh, anything that we haven't touched on that, that you'd like to talk about? Uh, to uh, you know, my my aim here is to invite people into the world of birds who um aren't aren't necessarily there yet don't uh, don't have access to the to the beauty or or um you know just haven't kind of stepped into uh looking up and opening their minds to uh to that area of the environment is there is there anything else that you
2: would well uh i think we've touched on a lot of things i think so um there is a list longer than my arm of things that we Haven't touched on... We only have all day, so there's not enough time. (laughs) 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 I will say that peregrines, since they are nesting in cities now, have become much more accessible to the general public. And in Philadelphia in particular, we have seven pairs of peregrines nesting within the city limits of Philadelphia. That's 15% of the total population of the state is within Philadelphia. So they're out there, they're living in the city, they're coexisting with people. It's not an easy truce, as I mentioned, uh, when we talk about them landing in the street or uh, um, uh, conflicts with, uh, uh, you know, repairs and maintenance, but they are thriving in the city so that they're accessible and uh they are absolutely charismatic so they're out there to be to be seen and enjoyed very cool yeah we're we're very lucky here in Philadelphia to have fairmount
0: park and uh john hines just south of us to yeah kind of bolster this population we have a really cool uh birding tradition here in uh oh yes in we philadelphia. do philadelphia john bartram um who uh, who who started who
2: who who's began this tradition here that's hard to say. You mentioned John Bartram, okay, and he and his... John James his, Audubon. And his, yes, John Bartram, uh, John's son, William Bartram, and Alexander Wilson. That's right, Alexander. Who is known as the father of American ornithology, who was a weaver in Scotland... And uh, somewhat rebellious and didn't know how to hold his tongue. (laughs) So he left Scotland because he had said and written some things that were very unpopular. He fled Scotland, came to the New World, met the Bartrams, and said, Gee, this is neat. I am going to write about and um, paint all the birds in North America. Yes. By the way, I have no idea what they are. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know anything about birds, especially about birds in North America. So the Bartrams supported him you know, intellectually and got him started. Okay. And uh, he wrote his many-volume set, uh, uh, American Ornithology, and was a bitter rival of John James Audubon, by the way. Okay. And partly as a result of that rivalry and partly as a result of the fact that John James Audubon couldn't hold his tongue either, he ended up publishing his Birds of uh, America in London because he couldn't find a publisher here. Wow. Because he was unpopular here. I did not know that but between those two they certain uh, those those are the two giants of American ornithology the bill gates and the
0: and the um the steve, and the jobs, steve jobs of, of uh, birding
2: yes Maybe. you could say that okay, cool. <laughs> you could say that uh,
0: that's fascinating um,
2: and philadelphia has uh, has gotten this this moniker the cradle of american ornithology and it derives in large part from that from that old tradition and the Academy of Natural Sciences here yes. in in Philadelphia.
0: And we're so lucky to have the Philadelphia Horticultural Society here in Philadelphia. The um, natural, the Academy of Natural Sciences. We have such a cool tradition of uh, naturalists here working in Philadelphia.
2: Yes, Breaking and currently. there is a tradition in Philadelphia that goes way back. You know, to such people as Thomas Jefferson, for example. You know. Um, who is not a Philadelphian, but uh, he was part of the intellectual elite that met in Philadelphia and, and, and just focused on science and natural history. Yes.
0: And we need more of that today. So that's, that's the goal. Yes. Yes. So thank you so much for your time, Art. Uh, this was a pleasure to, to meet you and pick your brain. Thanks for meeting us in the studio.
2: Well, thank you for the invitation. It's been a true pleasure. Awesome.
0: Hope to hang out again sometime. (laughs) Let's do that. Okay. And we did hang out again, and we got together to ban these falcon chicks Uh, a couple weeks later. He invited me. So uh, you want to hear the rundown, don't you? I do. I'm, like, sweating over here. Okay. So to put your mind at ease, let me give you the whole rundown. I show up at 9 a.m. City Hall, the base of City Hall. There's other photographers sort of assembling. I'm looking at them. They look bird nerdy. I look bird nerdy. We're all like, are you here for the Falcon banding? And they're like, oh yeah, I've been here like for the past 10 years, and I'm getting real giddy. These guys have helmets with them. They have other protective gear. I'm like, oh man, what am I getting myself into? We all get signed in. We take the tiny little elevator ride up to the top of City Hall. We all get out and get the uh, work table out with all the tools, all the different testing materials, all all the banding uh, utensils, there's tools, there's um, uh, pH strips, there's uh, boxes, there's nets, there's all sorts of stuff. So we uh, go over the curtains, we peel back the curtains, and there's mom right on the ledge. She heard us coming up, and she's checking us out. She's like, what are you guys up to? And at that point, I had never been Uh, eye-to-eye, level-to-level with a peregrine falcon before. She was checking you out. She was seriously checking me out. And uh, there's a shot uh, in this video that you guys can check out uh, if you go to urbanengineers.com slash blog. Um, There's uh, a moment I peel back the curtain and she's just looking at me with those double fovas that Art's describing and those intense, massive golf ball eyes And she just looks like she wants to eat me. It was amazing. (laughs) She knew what was going to happen. She did. She had a sense of it. She experienced it last year. Um, She is a repeat female in the nest, uh, I think, for a few years now. She's been there. Um, But you can learn more by watching the video. You can really experience it for yourself, and you can uh, hear Art um, speak about the process as he's banding the chicks.
1: Very cool. Yeah.
0: So um, (laughs) that's not where the story ends, though because after we banded these chicks we came down from city hall and uh i had i had yet to come down from the high of being up there it was so exhilarating being dive bombed by, <laughs> by peregrine falcons literally dive bombed literally dive bombed uh screamed at and um just being so close with these powerful creatures it was it got my adrenaline going and uh and i got down and um this uh woman who worked at uh the law firm across the way, uh, she she asked, are you going to the next nest? And at that point, I was like, what next nest? And she was like, there's another nest at 2400 Chestnut Street that we're going to, and we're going to ban those chicks there. And at that point, I was like, I'm not going back to work. I'm going to film another nest. And I'm so glad that I did go because I got to go on a flat-topped roof and... Uh, and really experience the U-shaped dive bombs of these peregrines and to really get a full view of Philadelphia. Um, I'm so grateful I was able to capture the photographs and the video from that moment on top of the apartment building. Um, subsequently, a much more ferocious female, so uh, she was really getting it up in my face, and I was able to get some cool images. Um, but, yeah, I'm just so grateful for... Um, Arts generosity, inviting me out, uh, allowing me to capture uh, this important work in the restoration of the species. We hope to see it off of the endangered species list uh, in the coming years.
1: And what else can I say? This was a stellar bird nerd experience. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I I saw the video. I I loved it. It's awesome. Um, you know, I one thing that like. I don't know. I feel like we we get a we do get a sense of how powerful these these peregrines are, and um, we get a sense of you know the formations that they take. It's it reminds me a lot of like World War II, exactly. You know, like the way they would come in and and like you know dive bomb ships or or tanks or whatever. It's like it's like you know it's like the the military kind of. Took a, a note from the peregrines, you Absolutely. know, <laughs> um, and uh, I don't. I mean, for me, watching this video, I, it's it seems kind of horrifying. <laughs> like it's. I mean, you really do get the sense that you're uh, you're kind of out there, and all you have between you and these these ferocious talons are is a is a broomstick. Right.
0: I forgot to mention that uh, the shields that we use uh, in interacting with. Uh these raptors are broomsticks because, uh, you know, the bristles are soft enough that it certainly wouldn't harm the bird, but you're able to get um, the attack uh, away from your head and from your face and from your vital organs <laughs> uh, because they're coming at you uh, full speed with these razor talons. So it was important to stay protected with helmets uh, and using these brooms as shields, not swords. We weren't swinging at the birds as they do with
1: dove past us, but simply to protect our faces and extremities. And the way you described it was kind of like, you know, you had several photographers up there, so, like, you kind of had to, like, take turns, like, shielding each other, right? We did. It was kind of like uh, being in the
0: foxhole or something like that, (laughs) where I was like, I'll cover you, you know? And I, at one point, had two brooms, one in each hand, while the other photographer was grabbing his shots, and then I would pass him the broom to get some footage of my own. And yeah, it was exhilarating. I was, uh, I was uh, overwhelmed and uh, so grateful to um, participate with this uh, na- natural predator that lives among us, above us, uh, that we really don't get to interact with at this like, eye-to-eye level. They're always so much h- higher above and living on a different plane. Um, but to s- be in the city with the raptors was really special.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Um there was like luckily like nobody got any injuries. The 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 Not Peregr- this year. Yeah, the peregrines definitely they 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 never get injured, right? It's it's yeah. always the people that it's are people. at at risk. Yeah. <laughs> so so nobody got injured this year, but there were some like war stories. Yeah, right? there was some broken bones in the past. Apparently a photographer uh
0: like was uh had a falcon coming right out of his lens and took a quick step and slipped and broke his wrist actually uh i think it was last year yeah so i was i was fully prepared for the worst and uh luckily came out completely unscathed yeah but um yeah i encourage uh people to look into the rich history of the peregrine falcon they they nest all over the globe from pole to pole but in north america they've been imperiled for um, Fifty years now, since the '40s, and we're finally seeing them turn around, and uh, very soon we'll be seeing them off the endangered species list. It'll happen. It'll happen. Yeah, with the help of Art McMorris, exactly, and friends. Right. He's our superhero. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Please get involved. Reach out. Um, Yeah. For more information about the Peregrine Falcons in Philadelphia, head to City Hall Falcons on Facebook. Um, Head to twenty-four hundred. Chestnut.com slash falcons to check out a live feed of the protected nest there and uh, visit us at our home on the web at urbanengineers.com slash blog. Thanks for listening to Bird Nerd. Thanks for joining me, Dave. I'll see you for episode number three.
1: Until next time.